Take your Bibles and find your way to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter one. Tonight we are continuing our verse-by-verse study of this great book of wisdom and we're still gathering steam, preparing to launch into the official body of this book. I'm gonna read verses one through seven, if you follow along with me. Proverbs chapter one, verses one through seven. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In a way, these seven verses resemble orientation on day one of a training program. I was reading this week about something called extreme polar training that takes place near the Arctic Circle in or on Canada's Baffin Island. Participants receive classroom lessons on how to survive, how to deal with extreme polar conditions. Temperatures around minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit, extreme winds, low visibility, hiking, and conducting expeditions in deep snow. Along with the classroom lectures that prepare them for these elements in the environment, students participate in short training sessions where they actually go out and they practice and they They put their learning into practice, they mess up, they're corrected, and they they get to keep trying as they go. And the lessons culminate in a final test where they're actually dropped off in the middle of the tundra and turned loose without their instructors for an actual mini expedition. The training includes countless tips, tricks, and instructions that they're going to have to learn and relearn for the rest of their day. Some things are easy to pick up and other skills are those that it takes a long time. They have to hone them, they have to practice. But there were also foundational rules for this training. Rules that are learned at the beginning, rehearsed throughout, and always in mind no matter how far one advances in their knowledge of polar expeditions. At this particular school, there were five iron rules of polar travel. You ready, just in case you ever head out? Eat before you're hungry. Drink before you're thirsty. Remove layers before you sweat. Put them back on before you get cold. And stop hiking before you're exhausted. These rules don't discriminate. Newbies have to own them. When you're new in the expedition world on the tundra, you have to know these five things. But also, the most seasoned expeditioner also runs these through their mind as they're trekking through the snow and the harsh elements. They have to be integrated into the psyche 
of the one who would survive. To forget these five rules was to put one's life in danger. And verse seven of Proverbs chapter one is like that. It's like those rules. These eight Hebrew words contain foundational, fundamental, life-saving instruction for us. Imagine with me for a moment that we're getting off the bus at Wisdom Training School. We aren't really sure what to expect and our divinely appointed instructor Solomon begins by immediately telling us what we're there to learn. That's verses one through six. You don't know what you don't know, he says. You're here because you need to know more. You need to receive instruction. You need to make better decisions. You need training so that you could become wise enough to know that you're not wise enough. This is our orientation. Our minds are being prepped for our training, for the training to come. And the instructor's intention at this orientation is that we sense our lack, that we sense that we need something we don't have. Through the first six verses, he wants each of us to say, I want that. I'm here to learn. Where do I start? After verse six, Solomon turns to walk away, signaling the end of orientation, leaving us to sense our lack, left to wonder what tomorrow's first lesson will be. But then he stops and he turns again to speak to us. And we lean in, wondering if he's gonna give us a hint about tomorrow. And he says in a measured voice, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then he walks away and leaves us to ponder as we prepare for the first lesson to come in verse eight. Proverbs 1-7 is the foundational truth that undergirds the rest of the book. It's the motto, the theme, the iron rule that must not be forgotten as we progress in our wisdom training. At strategic points throughout the book, we'll be plainly, explicitly reminded of this theme with these exact same words. But it always stands at the core of all of the wisdom that we're going to learn, all of the lessons. Now, sometimes in sermons, we look for shorter, memorable snapshots that we can take away. And I just want to tell you, tonight, verse 7 is the takeaway. Memorize it. Recite it. Own it as an iron rule that is always present, guiding and governing your daily life. It can't be improved upon. My outline will not improve, verse seven, okay? Own it as it is. Because this verse is so foundational and fundamental to our study moving forward, we're gonna take a, a careful look at its components. We're gonna dive into the weeds a little bit and consider what it's made up of. And to do that, we can break down verse seven into two alternative ways of life. That's kind of how we want to structure our look at this foundational knowledge. Two alternative ways of life. Really, Solomon gives us foundational, this foundational rule, and it contrasts or shows us the way of the wise and the way of the fool, very plainly. The way of the wise and the way of the fool, these two alternatives that will be ever before us as we work through the Proverbs. The first alternative is the way of the wise, and that is where he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Beginning means that it's the first and controlling principle. It's not necessarily number one in a long list. It's the first, but it's the one that also governs all the rest. It's the controlling rule for all the remaining lessons. 
In the context of Proverbs, in particular chapter one, knowledge is used interchangeably with wisdom and understanding. It's a synonym. It's intellectual. It includes the apprehending of information, but we would miss Solomon's point and the connection with wisdom and understanding if we thought of it as only intellectual. In other words, knowledge here does not mean just knowing facts, just knowing information. It's more than that. It's moral. It's ethical. Knowledge in the Proverbs recognizes right and wrong in God's economy. Knowledge understands what God expects and then lives and acts accordingly. And that's what Solomon has in mind here. For an example, imagine if I were or you were to study James Naismith's original basketball rule book. You watched endless hours of basketball game footage. You studied offense, defense, statistics, all the rest. In some sense, you would have a knowledge of the game of basketball. But if that theoretical knowledge has absolutely no bearing on your ability to dribble or shoot or rebound or guard, then in some sense, you don't know the game of basketball. And you'd be found out pretty quick on the court. There's a distinction between the intellectual knowledge that you could possess and say, I know everything there is to know about basketball and the experiential knowledge, the knowledge that you can actually put into practice to play the game. Similarly, the knowledge that Solomon puts forth in Proverbs to us and is spoken of here is practical. It lives, it breathes, it works, it responds. And in particular, responds to God. The basic controlling feature, he says, of this knowledge, this, this beginning, is the fear of the Lord. And Proverbs 1.7 is not the only place that we find this truth. The same exact idea is communicated to us in parallel passages such as Psalm 111, verse 10. Note written by Solomon's father, David, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. Job, Job 28, 28 says this, and to man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Job makes that assertion in the midst of great suffering while enduring false accusations from his friends. He knew the controlling principle of life was the fear of the Lord, that true wisdom, even in spite of what he was experiencing, what would help him process what he was experiencing was the fear of the Lord. It governed his life so much that in the beginning, that's how God himself describes Job. In Job 1.8, God says this, that Job is a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And we're gonna spend some time in, uh, in our study tonight pressing into what the fear of the Lord is. But before we do that, we need to pause and recognize a very obvious implication. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and the beginning of wisdom, then to be without the fear of the Lord is to be without knowledge and wisdom. So why do you state the obvious? Because we encounter countless human beings every day who don't fear the Lord, yet they possess great intellectual ability. They have a staggering catalog of information in their minds. They possess unique skills, skills that many believers don't have. They possess a type of knowledge and wisdom that is not to be confused with what Solomon is talking about here. 
Solomon is talking about wisdom and knowledge that is intimately connected with spiritual learning and spiritual ability because it's intimately connected to a relationship with the Lord. In other words, to be truly wise requires knowing God. Proverbs 9.10. I don't know when we'll make it there, but it'll be worth it, okay? So hold on. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In this couplet, the fear of the Lord and knowledge of the Holy One are in parallel. Each is directly linked with wisdom and understanding, and they're synonymous with our word in verse 7 for knowledge. To truly attain wisdom, to truly attain insight in the ultimate sense requires knowledge of the Holy One, requires the knowledge of God. So to be truly wise requires knowing God. And Solomon tells us then to truly know God requires fearing him. Knowledge of God is inextricably linked with fearing the Lord. So how are we to understand that? What's that mean? What does the phrase mean to fear the Lord? Was well, a concept found from Genesis to Revelation? Sometimes it's a description of godly saints. They're called God-fearers. Sometimes it's a command for God's people. We hear the words, you shall fear the Lord. Positively, it's, a, it's possession to have the fear of the Lord is shown to be a cause for praise, as in the Proverbs 31 woman, who is to be praised because she fears the Lord. Negatively, in scriptures, the absence of the fear of the Lord is a hallmark of unbelief. It's a hallmark of unbelievers. Psalm 36.1, Romans 3.18, there is no fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is an indispensable component of wisdom and as such is found throughout the book of Proverbs as a concept. In exact form as we see it here, it's found 14 plus times. The fear of the Lord as a phrase. It's shown here to be the beginning of wisdom. Solomon says this is where it all begins. Same author says this is where it all ends. At the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter is what? Fear God and keep his commandments. To fear means, not surprisingly, to be afraid. To sense terror. To have dread. And the object of fear of the Lord is none other than Yahweh, the Lord. Solomon uses the name of God given to his people Israel, his personal covenant name. In other words, he's not saying fear a far off, distant deity that we know very little about. He's saying fear the God who revealed himself to his people, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, the Lord, the Lord your God. And just putting those two things together, being afraid and, and Yahweh, won't fully capture the idea for us. Fearing the Lord is much richer than simply being scared of God in the same way that we're scared of spiders or heights or clowns or anything else. This theme is going to come up again and again and again for us as we look at this book. And so tonight we need to lay some groundwork. I'm going to mention a lot of other portions of Scripture, and I'm not going to ask you to turn there. Okay, we're going to go fairly quickly. And really the idea is to, is to patch together a, a biblical understanding, a whole picture understanding of the fear of the Lord, 
what it means, how it affects our lives, what we're to think about it, what we're to do with it, because it's so foundational. First, I want to look at the fact that the fear of the Lord is a disposition or an attitude toward God. The fear of the Lord is an attitude or a disposition that we have toward God. It involves a heart disposition, a heart disposition that recognizes who God is and what God's like. And then it responds in awe and reverence and godly trepidation. When I say the word trepidation, that brings to mind the fact that as Christians, we, we have a tension when we think about fearing God. I do, maybe you don't, but there, there's this tension because we know that the veil separating us from God was torn down in Christ Jesus, right? We recognize that, we rejoice in it. So on one end, some say, fear God and keep his commandments. And then you have the other side sometimes shouting back saying, yeah, 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 but we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But we've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And so there's a tension when we think, well, what about the fatherhood of God? What about that nearness that we have as his adopted children? And yet on the other end of the spectrum, we're called to fear God. To not understand that tension results in a, often a very doled down definition of the fear of the Lord. A seriously doled definition that has no dread no terror, no trepidation associated with it. You've probably heard that for the believer, fear of God is simply paternal fear. Sometimes it's said that way. It's a familial fear. It's like reverence and respect that one has for a father. And there are elements of that that are true insofar as it goes. Romans 8, 15 clearly articulates that we approach God as a father in some respects. But that idea alone does not fully capture what it means to fear the Lord. We have to go further. Our experience bears this out. I love my dad. I have reverence for my father. I desire to honor my father. But I don't tremble at my dad's transcendent majesty. I don't imagine myself prostrating before him in worship, gazing upon his stunning glory. Familial respect and loving reference is a part of what it means to fear the Lord, but it's not the whole picture. I want to give you some examples that bear that out from Scripture. Think of God's people trembling at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, imploring Moses to be God's spokesman, God's representative, because they were terrified to hear God's voice. The same God that brought them out that rescued them, that redeemed them with his strong arm. They were terrified. Think of Isaiah in his throne room vision as he sees the room filled with the train of the Lord's robe and the sights and the sounds. And he says, woe is me for I am ruined for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Christ's disciples walked with him, they reacted similarly at various times. Peter had this reaction to the miraculous catch that was caused by Christ. He said after seeing the miracle, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. The disciples' reaction to Jesus calming the sea. Note this, it was after he had calmed the sea. Okay, they were scared 
of the waves and the wind and they were afraid they were going to die and then Christ calms the sea and then they became more afraid. Mark 4, they became very much afraid when he stilled the water. Peter's, James, and John's reaction to God's voice of the transfiguration, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. The reaction of the church when Ananias and Sapphira were punished swiftly and severely for their deception. Luke reports that great fear came over the entire church. And that's understandable. The day people died at church would be a day that there would be great fear amongst the congregation. John, the one who laid on Christ's chest as a dear friend, as a close brother, when he sees the vision of Jesus in Revelation, says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Fear of God is the fitting response of those who know their creator and they recognize their creatureliness. It's the idea that David expresses in Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? A godly fear includes a sense of trepidation, nervousness, awe in the presence of a holy God. Now there is no doubt, Hebrews is in my Bible just as it is yours. There is no doubt that we are confident, we can be confident to enter into the throne and come before the throne of grace in Christ Jesus. The writer makes that clear. Don't hear me say anything else, but get this. You don't approach the throne without actually knowing who sits on it, okay? We recognize who sits on the throne as we approach with confidence and that should instill a godly fear. The Lord is not to be trifled with. Jesus is a friend of sinners, but he's not our casual homeboy, okay? He's not our buddy. He's our friend, our savior. He's also our Lord, our master, our king. And our response to him, our disposition and attitude toward him should be one of fear. John Murray, in a very helpful chapter in a book or work called Principles and Conduct on the Fear of the Lord, says this. I'm going to quote him later as well, but starting here, he says, It is symptomatic of the extent to which the concept of the fear of God and the attitude of heart and mind which it represents has suffered eclipse, that we have become reluctant to distinguish the earnest and consistent believer as God-fearing. In other words, he says this. We used to call faithful Christians God-fearers. But that idea has kind of been eclipsed. It's fallen out of favor. And so the, no longer that, that idea is present. But then he corrects that by saying this. Biblical faith means the fear of God. Because the only God is glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. His name is glorious and fearful. If we know God, we must know him in the matchless glory of his transcendent majesty. And the only appropriate posture for us is prostration before him in awe and reverence. To think otherwise is to deny the transcendent greatness of God. And that is infidelity. Wow. To think of God as anything other than transcendent, Murray says, is infidelity. We're to fear him. The writer to the Hebrews, the same writer that speaks of our limited access to the Father through Christ, says that we're to show gratitude, thankfulness, 
by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. And he calls upon the imagery that we see at Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai. So the fear of the Lord includes a disposition, an attitude of awe and reverence and understands God's awful, terrible, transcendent majesty and power and his holy hatred of sin. It must include that. Any idea that divorces the fear of the Lord from those things and that disposition, I would say, is a, an unbiblical idea of godly fear. But it doesn't end there. The fear of the Lord is also a foundation for ethical and moral decision-making. It's a foundation for ethical and moral decision-making. The fear of the Lord possessed by God's children is demonstrated primarily through the decisions we make in life. We make decisions because there is either fear of the Lord or there's not. We make moral decisions based on whether we fear God or whether we don't. Consider some additional examples. Abraham, when he prepared to offer Isaac as a sacrifice in Genesis 22, God said this to him, now I know you fear God. How? Because Abraham obeyed. Because Abraham responded in faithful obedience. In 1 Kings 18, wicked King Ahab's administrator Obadiah is called one who feared the Lord greatly. And then there's a reason given. Why? Why was he known as one who feared the Lord? Because he hid 100 prophets from Jezebel. So Obadiah's fear of the Lord resulted in action in accordance with the Lord's will. It resulted in a moral decision. He made a decision. He did something because he feared the Lord. Earlier we referenced the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And there it says that God induced them to fear, to fear him. And then he gives a reason. It's so that they may not sin. God wanted his people to fear him so that the decisions they made would be decisions of righteousness and holiness and not sin. Listen to Moses' words to the people of Israel on the plains of Moab as they prepare to make their conquest of the promised land. Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13, and then verse 20. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him and you shall swear by his name. The fear of the Lord was to be the governing principle in the life of God's people. It was to motivate them to walk in his way, to love him, to serve him, to cling to him. The fear of the Lord was connected with ethical and moral decision-making. It motivates those things. It's the foundation of an obedient walk, in other words. So it's an attitude and a disposition of the heart that recognizes who God is, what he's like, and, and believes and feels about him as we should. And, it, and then it acts. It responds in our decision-making. The way of the wise is a life governed by the fear of the Lord. Another element, the fear of the Lord is to be a catalyst for our sanctification. A fear of God, the fear of the Lord is said to be a catalyst for our pursuit of Christ-likeness, our growth in holiness. Paul says what? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12 
He says, perfect holiness in the fear of God in 2 Corinthians 7. Peter says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. In other words, Peter says this, if you know God, (laughs) if you address him as father, you know that he's one who judges impartially. Conduct yourselves with fear. Conduct yourselves appropriately in response to the God you know, that you know he's a righteous judge and that he's impartial and live accordingly. And again, the writer of the Hebrews, don't go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Why? Because the Lord is judge. And it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The fear of the Lord is a catalyst for sanctification. God intends for our godly fear of him to keep us on the right path, to prevent us from turning away, from, to prevent us from turning aside from what he desires, from what he expects. It spurs us on in what he wants. He desires that we would be fearful in a way that he uses to motivate us by his grace to press on with the expectation that we're gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an accounting for our lives. So the fear of the Lord is an important component in motivating us toward Christ-likeness. An interesting thing that helps us understand the fear of the Lord, an interesting idea, the fear of the Lord is an attribute that's perfectly possessed by our supreme example, Jesus. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, the spirit-anointed Messiah, the Lord Jesus, is described as one who delights in the fear of the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 11, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit-anointed Messiah, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that we know now, this side of when Isaiah was writing, who he was, He had the spirit in full measure, we're told. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. And listen, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Sound familiar? Proverbs 1-7. The Lord Jesus, God's anointed one, the Messiah full of the spirit was full of the fear of the Lord. Just consider that for a moment. Jesus of Nazareth, perfectly, he perfectly bore all the marks of having the Holy Spirit dwell upon him, anoint him. And he's described as one who fears God. I read that, I thought, what, what, what do I want the Spirit of God to work in me? Am I in tune? Do I want the Spirit of God to cultivate a fear of the Lord in my heart? Christ had it fully. It's something that the Spirit wants. How did Jesus fear the Lord? What did that look like? His perfect submission to the Father's will. Absolute obedience. Perfect submission to what God wanted. A yielding of his will to the Father's will, which we ultimately know was in unison. John Murray says this again. 
the first thought of the godly man in every circumstance is God's relation to him and it, and his and its relation to God. That is God consciousness, and that is what the fear of God entails. He says the first and, and primary thought, the first thought of the godly man in every circumstance is how that circumstance relates to God and himself, and then how he relates to the circumstance and to God. We get to find the fear of the Lord this way. The fear of the Lord is what we think of God, our heart's response to that thinking, and the resulting decisions that are made in our lives. The fear of the Lord is our heart response, or it is what we think of God. It's our heart response to that thinking, and then it's the decisions we make with our lives. It's the essence of Christ's likeness. So how do we cultivate it? How do we cultivate a fear of the Lord? There are many ways that I haven't listed here, but just a few for you. Study God. Study God. Know his attributes. Know what he's like. You can't fear the Lord if you don't know what he's like. Familiarize yourself with his transcendence and remind yourself of your finiteness. Just think of his omnipresence. That's one attribute of many. That should instill fear. A healthy dose of God's omnipresence cultivates a fear of the Lord in our souls. Another way, seek to learn the fear of the Lord through the intake of his word. Psalm 19.9 actually uses the phrase fear of the Lord to in referring to the law of God. We learn the fear of the Lord as we learn God's ways, as we learn God's truth, as we learn what God expects. Another one. Consider the price paid for your sin. Consider the great cost that was paid for your sin. Yes, it was paid in love, but what a cost. How holy is our God that the only possible way that you could be redeemed was that he would crush his son. Consider the price paid for your sin to cultivate a fear of the Lord. Consider your obligations to the Lord. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then he goes on and he says, Knowing the fear of the Lord they persuade men, they preach the gospel, they do the work of the ministry. And that phrase, fear of the Lord, refers back to this, that Paul knew he was gonna stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an accounting for his life. He felt the obligation that he had to, to a holy, righteous judge. Lastly, pray for it. Pray for it. We just read the Lord Jesus in his, as the spirit-anointed Messiah was one who fully had the fear of the Lord. The Spirit of God will work that in our lives. That's one of those prayer requests. You don't have to wonder if it's pleasing to God. God, help me fear you. Give me a heart that fears you, that reveres you, that awes you, that has a sense of your transcendent majesty, that results in a life that's in conformity to your word, that's afraid of disappointing you, that's afraid of transgressing your holiness, that recognizes that the sin that I'm trifling with was what put my Lord and Savior on the cross. Pray for it. 
Solomon doesn't only give us a positive side, though. We have this positive idea that the fear of God, that's a positive idea, that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. He also, to help us understand, to help us know this foundational truth, he gives us an antithesis. An antithesis of of the beginning of knowledge and a fear of the Lord. And that is we have a second alternative, and that's the way of the fool. The way of the wise is to fear the Lord. That's the beginning of knowledge. That's the beginning of wisdom. That's where it all begins. There's a second alternative, though, and that's the way of the fool. Solomon says, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And here in the book of Proverbs, we meet the fool. A character that is ever-present in the verses of Proverbs. The fool is the antagonist, the bad example, the embodiment of what we are not to be. Three main terms are used and translated fool in the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs. There's significant overlap in these terms and what they're, they're used to mean. We think generally we, we understand to be silly, to be stupid, to be unwise, to be unprudent, to generally lack skill in life is to be a fool. And that conveys some of what the terms mean, but there are other important elements. We can't just think of the fool as like the airheaded court jester, okay? It's, it's more significant than that. We need to think of the fool in Proverbs in theological terms. To be a fool includes mental deficiency, but to be a fool is to have a moral deficiency. To be a fool is to be one who lacks what God desires. To be a fool is to be rebellious, to commit iniquities, to be a mocker, to deny the Lord, to lack self-control. In short, wisdom is everything that a fool is not. And a fool is everything that wisdom is not. That's the idea. And our parallelism in verse 7 indicates that those who do not fear the Lord are characterized by a hatred of all the things that Solomon says in the verse 6 verses you need. Okay? Don't miss that. God's word through the first six verses, Solomon says, you need this, you need that, you need instruction, you need counsel, you aren't wise enough. And the fool says, no, thank you. Don't want it. Don't need it. Don't have time for it. Can figure it out on my own despises, has contempt for the very things that Solomon says we need. The fool despises the very things God says we need. The disposition of a fool is one of insolence, arrogance, incorrigibility. And verse seven makes clear for us, again, it's foundational, it makes clear for us that the hallmark of a fool is contempt for wisdom and instruction. And so we're given this negative example that we should always have in mind. If, if our life of wisdom training as a Christian should always include this idea that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, that we never depart from that, we should also understand that fools despise wisdom and instruction. I think that begs the question, can a Christian, can a Christian act like a fool? Yes and No. As an unbroken trajectory of life, no. The fool in Proverbs is one who ultimately doesn't know God. 
As the unbroken trajectory of life, the fool is one who has no fear of the Lord, who doesn't have the knowledge and wisdom and discernment that Solomon says is needed, that comes ultimately from a knowledge of God, connected to a relationship with him. However, in moments, in particular areas of life, in various manifestations of sin and weakness, absolutely Christians can act like fools. Sin is foolish by the definition of what Proverbs lays out for us. And so as we work through the verses, Proverbs, when he brings up the fool, it shines light on foolish blind spots that Christians have. Areas of sin that aren't put to death. Area blind spots. We all have blind spots. And seeing the fool in Proverbs helps us see those blind spots. Solomon's the master of using the negative example. He lays it out for us. This is what a fool does. We should say, wow, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't live like this. I shouldn't act like that. But verse 7 gets down deeper than some of the practical outworkings of foolishness and gets to the heart of foolishness, the seed of foolishness. And it helps us to ask the question, am I acting like a fool instead of a God-fearer? Am I acting like a fool instead of a God-fearer? And as I read verse 7, one word kept jumping off the page at me for the fool, and that was that he, he was not teachable. To despise wisdom and instruction is to be unteachable. The hallmark of foolishness, the foundation of all foolishness is a lack of teachability. And what a great implication for us, for me, as we think about this foundational truth in Proverbs. We ask, do we fear the Lord? Are we God-fearers? Do we possess the fear of God that leads and controls and governs our knowledge? We can also ask this, am I teachable? Am I teachable? Do your friends find you open to correction? Husbands, wives, would your spouse describe you as teachable? As open to input, to instruction, to wisdom. Students, children, do you despise instruction from your parents, your peers, your mentors? In one sense, it's so simple. At the basis of all that a fool is, is a hatred for the things that God says he needs. And we find that working itself out in this lack of teachability. Listen to this. A brief survey of New Testament epistles makes clear that we're insufficient on our own. Solomon makes that clear right here. He says, you need these things. And the wise person responds and says, yes, where do I start? And Solomon says, the fear of God. And the fool says, I don't need those things. I don't need to listen. I'm good. Listen to what the New Testament says about our sufficiency on our own. Romans 15 says that we're to counsel one another. Implication, we need counsel. We need correction. We need the body to do that. Galatians 6 says that we're to restore or put one another back in order. That implies a need. That implies a lack. That requires others to come alongside, put us back in place. Ephesians 4 says we need teachers to grow in the unity of the faith into Christ's likeness. 1 Thess 5 says that we need admonishment, encouragement, and help. From a human standpoint, the effectiveness of these one another's depends on teachability. Teachability. You can't despise wisdom and instruction 
and be encouraged, admonished, strengthened in your spiritual walk. Considering this, there seems to be a, oh, sort of a subversive lack of teachability in the way that we can approach the Christian life. And I've seen it in my own heart. I'm going to borrow a phrase from a pastor you know, but this subversive lack of teachability can manifest itself in sort of the Cape Crusader mentality. It's been said, you and God are the dynamic duo. And because you have your Bible, you have no need for any of the wisdom and instruction that's offered by anyone else. That is a subversive heart that lacks teachability. In fact, if you're in this dynamic duo, your main responsibility would be to listen skeptically to make sure that you can accept what others are saying. A lack of teachability works itself out in counsel situations where you seek counsel, but you only want to accept it if it agrees with what you already thought. That's to despise wisdom and instruction. We listen to sermons this way. We, we listen to sermons despising wisdom and instruction. Say, how can we do that? Because we listen to skeptics. We listen to counsel this way. We can approach our marriages and friendships this way. We can approach our parents this way. And at its core, the manifestations of this lack of teachability is exactly what Solomon's talking about in verse seven for the fool. You despise wisdom and instruction. And in contrast, there's such a great contrast here. In contrast to the proud and close-minded fool that despises wisdom, God fears know they need it, are eager for it, and as a result, you foster, you cultivate a heart of teachability. Proverbs 1.7 serves as, as an interesting checkpoint in the life of the Christian. It's a measuring stick. You can evaluate each moment of life with Proverbs 1.7. Decisions you make, your approach, your response to people, your response to trials. Are you fearing the Lord? Or are you living like a fool? It can also be a measuring stick that we can look at the overarching trajectory of life up against. Does the aim of your life, is the aim of your life marked by a fear of the Lord? Or is it marked by a perpetual, ongoing, despising, a looking down upon, a failing to see your need of wisdom and knowledge? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The end of verse 7, orientation for wisdom training is over. Solomon gives us his theme it's the theme of a wise life, the fundamental rule. We cannot start wisdom's path without it, and we cannot reach the end without it. It's always there. We commit to this at the beginning, and we turn to it throughout our path of learning wisdom this side of eternity. I want to leave you with two, two lines, again, from our friend John Murray. He says this concerning the fool. It is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. The essence of impiety to not fear God when there is reason to be afraid. And yet, wisdom, 
for the wise. He says the fear of God is the soul of godliness. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. The fear of the Lord is the being of knowledge. We're to cling to it, be governed by it, and aim at it in our walks as believers.